Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. I'm so glad you're able to join me today because, as you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, and I'm really having a lot of fun sharing it with you. But before I begin, I wanted to remind you that Algonquin Defining Moments now has its own line of merch. I've decided that my favorites are the coffee cup, the water bottle, the journal, and the tote bag. Great for hikes and just generally hanging around. I've also established on Podbean a patron program for those who are interested in supporting my continued research efforts. Again, just click on the patron program link from the www.algonquin park heritage website or my Podbean site, www.algonquinparkheritage.podbean.com. What with Christmas in the offing, giving a subscription perhaps to a fellow Algonquin Park lover might be a creative approach for those family or extended family members who have everything. One other piece of housekeeping is that in this episode, virtually all of the stories I share come from two of my books, Algonquin Voices, Settlement Stories of Canoe Lake Women, that won the 2003 Allison Prentice Award for Best Women's History that year by the Ontario Historical Society, and Treasuring Algonquin, my 2006 book on the history of leaseholding in the park. In my last episode, I shared stories about the challenges that many leaseholders faced with accessibility and cabin construction. In this episode, I'd like to introduce you to a few more interesting characters who set the stage for the leasehold community. But first, I thought I'd start with a description from my friend and colleague Rory Mackay as to what a typical Algonquin cottage actually looked like in those early days. Most Algonquin cabins are fairly primitive in their plan and furnishings. This is often intentional, as most leaseholders consider their cabins their hideaways. In the case of my former cottage, a wooden stairway at the western end led through a screen door and wooden door made of half-log siding into the kitchen. The kitchen in the early years was furnished primarily with a coal oil three-burner stove, and lighting was by coal oil lamp. Dishes and utensils were stored in various containers of tin or wood, some of the latter having been made from orange crates, turned on their ends and covered with oilcloth. A washstand stood in a corner under a small window in the west end of the cabin. On the south wall of the kitchen was a window. One half of the two parts of the window opened sideways. The other swung on hinges at the top and was hooked to a beam above when it was open. The kitchen was separated from the living room by a partition of quarter-inch plywood. A bright green table and chairs occupied a place beneath another window on the south wall. Similarly arranged with sideways and upward swinging halves. A daybed occupied the partition wall and a wooden rocking chair sat in front of a window in the northern wall of the room. Two or three coal oil lamps lit this room at night and a coal-burning Quebec heater stove which was used to burn wood as fuel fended off the cool evenings of August. The floor was linoleum. A door in the south wall led to a small outdoor porch, or what might be called a deck today. Off the living room to the east were two small bedrooms, added after the original construction, separated by another quarter-inch plywood partition. They were sufficient only for a bed and a nightstand. Each had a coal oil lamp and a window, in the east wall. The trunk of an immense hemlock tree dominated the view from one window. 
The aforementioned porch was used as a sitting location, unscreened. It was a shady location, being protected from the sun by the hemlocks. The two posts that led to the stairs were topped by carvings of bears, about a hand's length tall, one standing with paws raised, the other sitting on a log with eyes covered by its paws. The porch also served as a place under which to store lumber, nails, stovepipe, and a cold storage area. This was a tin-lined wooden enclosure with a tin-lined wooden door. Ice was placed inside a container within the cooler to keep perishables a bit longer than without this arrangement. There was another small cold cellar, partly built into the hillside, just outside the kitchen door. To keep things cold, most leaseholders eventually graduated from a hole in a nearby hillside or in the ground like the Graff family on Smoke Lake had. Theirs was a lidded copper wash boiler around which ice was packed to keep things cool. Pits dug in the side of a hill came first and then an ice box. Initially, those in the Canoe Lake and District area got ice blocks for their ice boxes from an old log ice house at the Portage store. As more and more cottages were built on Smoke Lake, the local caretaker, Jack Hamilton, built a log ice house at his cottage, which is now the site of the Smoke Lake parking lot. The Case family up on Brulee Lake cut ice out of the lake every year in the winter and had three coolers. One held the soft drinks, another the beer, and a third was for vegetables, meat, and milk. For most leaseholds, water was provided from the lake, pumped uphill by a hand-operated cast-iron pump, painted red through one-inch diameter galvanized pipe. At the top of the hill, there was a galvanized tub with a lid and a tap at the bottom. Clothes would be washed nearby with square wash tubs and a washboard, wrung by hand and hung on a line between trees. For the Savage family on Smoke Lake, there was a fresh spring nearby that produced a cold channel of water out into the lake, which was where the family would get fresh water. Every spring, James Savage would dig down a bit and install a wooden four-sided box, which would fill up and provide 45-degree water all summer long. For those who stayed for many weeks in the summer, the organizing of provisions was a challenge. As B. Lawford from Smoke Lake recalled, every June we would give Eaton's a big food order, which would be delivered to the Smoke Lake Landing. The cookies and the oranges would be carefully given out to last the summer. Visitors would know to bring fruit, vegetables, and meat when they came for a visit or a holiday. Before we had a motorboat, we would lash two Peterborough canoes together and transport everything across the lake. Usually in the evening or the early morning, when the lake was likely to be relatively flat. Because when there was a strong southwest wind, it was very difficult to get by canoe from Ragged Bay into the main part of the lake due to the crosswind. The Savages would order meat, which would arrive from Brooks Transport. Mrs. Savage would pressure cook three or four roasts of beef, pack the meat in jars, and place them in a hole dug in the ground to keep them cool. Using the three-burner coal oil stove, it would take over an hour to heat the stovetop oven up to 350 degrees. Mrs. Savage was constantly making jams, pies, and other goodies with the blueberries and raspberries they would pick. Things were primitive then, as they still are for most leaseholders, as even today most don't have hydro, and rely on propane appliances to provide at least some semblance to modern city life. As Kay Graham on Smoke Lake told me, One of the most exciting days at Smoke Lake that I can recall when I was younger 
was the year the propane refrigerator came down the lake and was installed in a back porch. It went with the two-burner propane stove that we already had, the wood stove that was in the kitchen, and a small Quebec heater that provided the heat in the living room. Later, a large stone fireplace was built, and the Quebec heater was moved to the sleeping cabin. Two other great heating stories come from Rory Mackay on Lake of Two Rivers and the Matthews clan on Canoe Lake. As Rory shared, our large double-burner oil space heater was purchased second-hand in Pickering and brought to the park in the trunk of my father's Pontiac car. It was unloaded at the highway and carried in through the bush over the hill behind the cottage. As the story has it, my father was entertaining the Greek consul, John and his wife Dory, their friends Marco and his wife Greta, and a Mr. Rossetti, who was the then Greek ambassador to Canada. I have no idea how my father came to meet them. But anyway, John Marcos and my father hauled the space heater while Mr. Rossetti supervised enthusiastically. The space heater made staying at the cottage in the winter more possible. We would arrive in the late morning and snowshoe in. The space heater would be lit, and while the cottage was warming up a bit, a space was shoveled off for the car by the road. This usually took considerable time. Water was then obtained by chopping a hole in the ice with an axe and a pickaxe. A walk on the lake might follow, or an excursion down the road to check on the river mouth. All of this activity was by design, as it took many hours for the cottage to fully warm. While after a few hours some of the air was warm, one could still see frost on the metal table legs and the beds had a cold, damp feeling to them. My mother recalled that it was easier to look after my brother and I up there in the wintertime because there were no bears about and the lake was frozen and so we couldn't fall in. It is my impression that in those days the winters were colder and there was considerably more ice covering the lake than of late. One might think that we spent lots of time burrowing in snow forts or making snow angels, but my father discouraged that sort of thing. He had helped conduct research on men in winter conditions in northern Saskatchewan after the war and always impressed upon us boys the importance of staying dry when it was cold. The Matthews Furnace Project was a perfect example of what some neighbors thought was a completely insane idea. It started with son Graham Matthews, who had taken out a lease for a parcel next door to his father Charles on the west side of Canoe Lake. Their cottage was really two log buildings placed end-to-end -end in a slight V-shape in order to form a triangle-shaped bathroom in the center. This design made it difficult to heat. As recounted by the family, One day in the fall, the Matthews brothers were at lunch in downtown Toronto and noticed a group of houses being demolished nearby. Curious, they got out of their car and for a closer inspection, and among other goodies, they found a nearly new oil-fired forced air furnace. The foreman said, Hey, $100 and you can have it all. That included all the wiring, the thermostat, all the ductwork, and a 200-gallon fuel tank, along with everything else that wasn't nailed down. They gave him a deposit and went back on Saturday with a trailer to load it all up. It was then stuffed into one side of one brother's double-car garage for the winter. The next challenge was to figure out how to get all of it up to the cabin site. Graham Matthews spent most of the winter building a barge out of a two-by-fours, and some plywood, and in the spring the barge was loaded onto a trailer and various furnace parts were placed onto the barge in a relatively balanced way. Then early in June they took off of the cottage with this huge load wrapped in plastic, 
and the trip amazingly went without incident. They backed the trailer into the water, and the barge floated free and clear. With a little adjusting of the load, they started the outboard, and away they went across the lake. The one-mile trip from the Portage store went smoothly, except for some very strange glances from fellow cottagers. The prize was unloaded, stowed away temporarily, and they began excavating for a new room at the rear of the main cottage. The first few wheelbarrow loads went relatively easily, but as they worked further into the bank, they ran into major rocks and an enormous amount of dirt as the bank got steeper. Some of these boulders would only yield to the pressure of a small winch. Finally, they had a level area cleared and began constructing a building, which took shape relatively quickly. Before it was completely closed in, they manhandled the furnace into position, using rollers and the brute strength of all the warm bodies they could find. The enclosure was finished, and the stovepipe was installed. Now the whole family had to get involved. Daughter Marnie, then 12 years old, was elected to crawl under the lowest part of the original building and dig out a trench for the ductwork, which would serve that area. This involved lying on her belly and digging with a shovel as she moved forward. What a nasty job this was. But after eating a great deal of topsoil, she completed her assignment. Meanwhile, son Dave was disposing the dirt from Marnie's excavation, while little Pete was the head gopher delivering cokes and beer as required, and Mary Jo was keeping everyone's spirits up with offerings of food. Eventually, all the parts were in place, and the floating dock was towed back to the Portage store to pick up four barrels of furnace oil that had been delivered from Huntsville. Each contained 45 gallons of oil and weighed about 300 pounds. With brute strength, they towed the barrels across the lake and moved them as close as possible to the fuel tank. They then pumped the 180 gallons of oil into the fuel tank with a hand pump. They completed the electrical work, hooked up the thermostat, and turned it up to the desired temperature. After a momentary pause while the fuel oil got to the burner, it burst into life, which brought smiles of great satisfaction to everyone's face. In 2006, the Matthew clan reported that it was still functioning normally, with no service calls, even after all of these years of use. I suspect that it was only the peace, grandeur, and beauty of the park that made putting up with such rustic conditions not just acceptable but desirable. All of the wives must have loved the park, though, or they wouldn't have been willing to stay up there alone, as in Jenny Armstrong's case. Dr. Armstrong would appear every second or third weekend all summer long. There she was, with six kids, no electricity, no running water, a wood stove for heat and to cook on, and only coal oil lanterns and candles for light. Often there'd be a full house of relatives and friends who would come by with their families to visit, and sometimes there were so many visitors that the entire cabin looked like one giant dormitory. Though most of the leaseholds were on Highway 60 corridor, there were a few out there in the hinterlands on Manitou, North Tee, Kiosk, and Cedar Lakes. The first northern adventurer was an angler named Lyle Ireland who first visited Cache Lake in 1913 and in the fall of 1914 went up to explore the Kiosk area. The Canadian National Railway had just recently completed the railway line from Ottawa to North Bay that ran through the northeast corner of the park. His description of departing North Bay after 9 p.m. in the evening 
and being dropped off at Coristine, a station just north of what later became Chios Station, at 2.30 a.m. in the morning, reminded me of my own trip in the area in 1968. While on a Camp Wapameo trip, we were picked up at Cedar Lake at night and deposited at Kiosk at some ungodly hour in the early morning before sunrise. I presume Ireland's fishing trips must have been an annual event, as in the 20s he noted that J.R. Booth's then walking boss, had a gang repairing the Kiosk Dam. They took he and his fishing compatriots and all of their camping equipment into Manitou. Later endorsed by Booth's Ottawa general manager, the Department of Lands and Forests approved a lease for Ireland with several friends on Manitou in 1922, and even transported in for him everything he needed, including lumber, stove, and all of their equipment. A few years later, friends of his also applied for and obtained a Lake Manitou lease. Soon after Ireland got his lease in 1923, a Dr. Robert Pincock from St. Catharines, Ontario, took out a lease for a one-acre parcel on the northeast side of nearby North Tea Lake. At the time, the only other resident was a ranger cabin nearby at the far west end of the lake. How the family ever got there is unknown, and in 1928, Dr. Pincock died suddenly, or, as his wife Jenny said, he slipped away into the great beyond. Jenny continued to visit periodically until 1941 when she sold the lease to a consulting engineer who wanted a hideaway where he could write a book. He would fly up a few times a year and would use it as a base to go hunting outside the park, but disappeared from the scene in the mid-1960s. The 1920s also brought about a dozen new leaseholds in the Rock Whitefish area as Rock Lake became more popular, and a few on Cedar Lake. Although, for some reason, J.R. Booth's logging firm wasn't anywhere near as accommodating as they had been up at Kiosk. He held the timber limits in the Cedar Lake area, and perhaps was now getting a bit disconcerted by the area's relative growing popularity. By the 1930s, there were three leases on Kiosk and maybe a dozen on Cedar Lake. Another fun story from those days comes from two sisters up on Little Cauchon Lake, whose family had obtained a lease. My father would go fishing in May and then again in late July and August and stay till late September. Friends that came to visit always came in by train from North Bay. The train would pass by between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. about 100 yards from our cabin. My father would put out a red flag near the tracks when he ran out of scotch. The train would stop, and the CNR guys would come out and ask what he wanted. In return, my father would provide the occasional fish and beer to the train workers. All of our furniture was brought in through Eaton's catalog. Later, after regular train service stopped in 1964, it would take a whole day to get in, and another whole day to get out. And from the main highway, we would drive 25 miles on a dirt road. We would pick up the keys to the gate that blocked the road from a guardhouse. Near the railway trestle at Daventry Station, which was another stop on the CNR line, we would park by the lake and then take our little boat to our camp. Then, as today, we had no electricity, no running water, and no TV. Here's a few more early leaseholder experiences that I thought you might enjoy. In 1920, Jim Noble was a conductor on the railway who lived in Perry Sound and helped dig out the Sims Pit Railway Station. Later it was called Taylor Staten Station, though I'm not sure that it ever really was an actual station. 
Anyway, Noble loved Algonquin Park and leased a site halfway between the entryway to Joe and Potter Creeks and the Tom Thompson Cairn. He used to arrive by train at Canoe Lake Station and would row over to his cabin from Mowat in a flat-bottomed punt that he had. Jim was very popular on the lake and in the 1930s was anointed the first, quote, mayor of Canoe Lake, unquote, a designation first bestowed on Shannon Fraser some 20 years previously. Fraser was actually anointed the mayor of Mowat, but by 1930, Mowat had disappeared, so the mayor of Canoe Lake became its replacement namesake. Many friends would come by and visit, and one good set of friends who would come frequently were Cal and Amy Loist. And like so many before them, the Loists loved Algonquin Park and spent time each summer camping with the nobles. In 1926, the Loists decided to get a lease themselves and took a site to the east of Hayhurst Point, which is located just south of the Tom Thompson Memorial Totem Pole in Cairn on Canoe Lake. Amy stayed up at Canoe Lake with the kids, and every few weeks Cal would arrive by train for a few days laden with boxes of fresh groceries to supplement the Eaton's provided hard goods. As mentioned previously, Eaton's camp and cottage catalog provided all of the food staples, and in the 30s and 40s, Eaton's used to offer residences at summer cottages their very own mail-order book that included just about every item one could possibly need for a cottage. Everything you order is packed and delivered from Toronto for free to the nearest steamship dock or railway station. For those unfamiliar, Eaton's in the 20th century was a Canadian retail and social institution. Founded by Timothy Eaton in 1869, shopping in those days usually involved haggling over the price. Eaton's was the first to have only one cash price, take it or leave it. And they were also the first to advertise good satisfactory or money refunded. Amy Loist was a very avant-garde feminist and according to legend did everything better than her husband. She was a superb organizer, especially in the bush, and a competitive breaststroke swimmer in Toronto who won lots of trophies. Her sister Tess, who later married Cam Thompson, was a competitive diver. The sisters would skinny dip together and sunbathe nude all of the time, which was considered very risque in those days. One story had Tess visiting her doctor in 1939, who, when commenting about the marks across her belly, was shocked speechless when Tess told him that she'd fallen asleep nude in the sun and that the lines were the outline of her book. Tess was one of the first girl guides in Canada and through them learned about camping, including setting fires, lighting lanterns, and cooking outside. Tess and Cam first came to visit the Lois on Canoe Lake on their honeymoon in 1927, and from then on they vacationed with Amy and Cal at Canoe Lake every year. Though Cam had never attended at Camp Amick, he was a grandnephew of Ernest Thompson Seton, who had visited in the summer of 1922 to teach the techniques and methods of his Woodcraft League of America. Cam's uncle Stuart Thompson, who was also related to Seton, was a core member of the Amic naturalist staff in its early years. In 1935, the Thompsons heard about John Macklem, who was trying to sell his fishing camp that he'd built around 1916 near Gilmore Island, and they jumped at the chance to have a summer hideaway on Canoe Lake. For the first few years, the Thompsons came in by train from Toronto with their three children as soon as school was out in June, and later, once Highway 60 was built, they came in by car, which would take five or six hours, as I've shared previously. Everett Farley, by then the local handyman and cabin builder and postmaster, whom I'll talk about in a bit, would pick them up at the Portage store.
They love to go to the musicals and corn roasts and campfires at Camp Omic, to which all canoe-like residents were always invited in those days. Tess loved to fish, and according to the family log, 1946 was a great fishing year. She set the family record by catching a 14-pound lake trout. It measured 17 inches around the belly. Her fishing style, though, was quite unique. It involved sitting on the shore with her line out until some hapless fish should happen upon her hook, whereupon she would stand up, pick up the rod, and march up the hill with it, the line dragging behind until the fish hit the shore. The locals thought she was nuts. That was no way to catch a fish, they often retorted, and were astonished at her success. Tess was also very influential with Ontario Hydro, for in 1953 the Thompsons were the first leaseholders on the lake to get hydro. Some thought it was just because the first main power line went directly to Camp Wapameo right next door. However, the truth was a bit subtler than that. Tess just happened to be making pies on the day that the installation was taking place. She took a pie, fresh from the oven, over to the boys who were cutting the line, and then she suggested that there were, quote, more where this one came from that would be just about ready in an hour that had their names on them, if and when they should feel like running the hydro line over to her cottage. In a heartbeat, it was done, with the cost being $10 for a pole and about a half a dozen blueberry pies. Now that I have you dreaming about summer blueberry pies, I thought it would be a good time for another musical interlude. Again from Sarah Spring, this is one of her compositions called Old Friend.
Another amazing Canoe Lake family were the Stringers, who lived up on Potter Creek. Both they and the Farleys were full-time residents, and I suppose it would have been more proper to add them to the full-time residents episode. However, be that as it may, in 1927, Kate and Jack Stringer, known to all as Mammy and Pappy, assumed the lease on the Suler House. As I indicated in my Paddler's Guide to Canoe Lake, the Suler House had originally been part of a package that had been bought by Dr. Peary from the Gilmore receivers in 1905 and had sold it to a Mr. I.T. Inslee. The Stringers were from Eganville, where Jack had owned a barber shop. They had 16 children, a remarkable feat in those days. The big Eganville fire had wiped them out, and so they moved to Killaloo and started again. Though Pappy loved barbering, even after he retired, he kept his barber's stool set up in a shed. He decided to become a park ranger. In 1919, he joined his son Dan on the Algonquin Park Ranger staff. Mammy was easygoing, with a sweet innocence about her, and was liked by everyone. She wasn't very tall, but had a unique style of her own. For some unknown reason, she always colored her hair, loved to wear high-topped boots, but refused ever to have her picture taken. By the late 1920s, most of the kids were launched, and the whole family only got together on holidays. One main social activity every Saturday night was to listen to whatever hockey or baseball game was playing on their old battery-powered radio. Mammy must have been very capable, as another story had her swimming up the lake from the portage store with a cook stove on her back and a turkey cooking in the oven. A third story had her paddling to a dance at Camp Omic when she was eight and a half months pregnant, stopping on the shore when she went into labor, delivering her child by herself, and then continuing on to the dance until the wee hours of the morning. But Mammy had a weak spot for one of her youngest sons, Jim. And no matter how old he got, she always referred to Jim as the baby of the family. And even when he was in his 60s, she was heard to comment, Now, dear, watch out and don't get your feet wet, my child. The stories of sons Jim Wham and Omer Stringer I'll leave for another episode. But we'll say for now, most of them are legendary. Another legend was Brent General Store Manager Jerry McGoggy. According to a few local sources, McGongie's family owned a bakery in Pembroke, and he had been a bush clerk for the Gillies Lumber Company. His wife had chronic asthma, so they'd moved to Brent thinking that the clear Cedar Lake air would be good for her. Jerry was a character, who claimed that he'd never been out of Brent more than three or four times since he'd first moved there. According to Jake Pigeon, who now runs the store for Algonquin Outfitters, Jerry was a very tight-fisted and dour man. He would sit at the back of the store and scowl at people and give the odd grunt while his daughter worked at the counter. It seems that canoe trips from the children's camps weren't very welcome at Brent in those days. One story recounted involved a canoe trip from Northway Lodge. Prior to leaving on the trip, guide Jake Pigeon told the girls that they couldn't be taken to dinner in Brent unless they wore their dresses. Not wanting to miss out on the fun, the girl campers brought their dresses and their pack sacks. As Jake later recounted, when we reached Cedar Lake, we camped across the lake and told them that Brent was over the hill beyond the lights that they could see in the distance. They hung their good clothes in the trees overnight to get all the creases out. Then, the next morning, they all got fixed up in their dresses and clean blouses. We paddled across Cedar Lake and then sent them into the store to ask Jerry when the next bus was going to Brent. He started yelling and told them that they were already in Brent. Well, the front 
screen door opened and all the girls came out screaming, with Jerry running behind them. Of course, we guides were outside, laughing our heads off. Luckily, it didn't take Jerry long to see the humor of the whole thing, and he was very nice to us and all the girls from then on. Though not generally open for leases, there was at one time one lease on Lake Opiongo. John R. Bates was a Packard auto dealer from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, who'd been coming to the park on fishing expeditions since the early 1920s. In 1930, he took out a lease on an island in the south arm of Lake Opiongo, and soon after, the department decided not to allow any more leases in the area. Bates was well spoken of and considered a good, straight, honest, and reliable businessman. In the eyes of the department, he was considered a first-class tenant of Algonquin Park. He had a 24-foot motorboat with an 80-horsepower Packard engine, which he loaned on several occasions to the local park rangers. In 1968, Bates fell seriously ill and he died in 1970. Soon after, an inquiry was received from his wife asking about the property on Lake Opiongo. To everyone's surprise, this Mrs. Bates was not the same Mrs. Bates who'd spent many summers on Opiongo with John Bates. Apparently, Bates had been leading a double life for decades. The real Mrs. Bates soon sold the lease back to the Crown, and his island home was demolished. The island continues to bear his name. Everett Farley first came to Algonquin Park with his wife Margaret and daughter Lulu in 1931 to take the position of lumber foreman for the Canoe Lake Lumber Company. Living in Oshawa, Everett was fearful of being laid off, so Canoe Lake seemed like a good career move, and he settled the family north of the Stringers on Potter Creek. There he built a beautiful split-level cabin out of cut logs with a hardwood floor inside. He installed a three-piece bath, which was unheard of at the time, and built a beautiful big stone fireplace. Later, a boathouse and two sheds were added. One shed was used as a stable where he kept three horses and a cow. The horses were always being used to haul timber or the ice that Farley would cut in the winter months for camps and cottagers. Sometimes he'd hitch them to his sleigh and take everyone on rides across the snow. There's a lovely picture of him doing this on my website in the Baskerville Picture Collection. Over the years, everyone on the lake grew to depend on the Farleys. Everett would open existing cottages in the spring, close them up in the fall, and make whatever repairs were wanted or needed. He would build cabins for new arrivals and add additions, porches or sleeping bunkies, to accommodate growing lake families. It was even said that he used to look after the level of the lakes at Tea Lake Dam for Ontario Hydro. He started a water taxi service with his huge inboard cedar strip motorboat he called Jazzy that chugged up the lake and could be heard for miles. Residents would write or later telephone, and he would pick up folks and their belongings at the train station or the portage store and take them to their cabins. Even after Highway 60 was built, folks would phone from Huntsville and ask that he meet them at the leaseholder's dock. He was always there, waiting in his boat to take them across to their cabins. In what eventually became a local tradition, he would help unload their gear, sit a while, and make conversation. And then, of course, not wishing to be rude, he would join the new arrivals for a quick, celebratory drink, before chugging off down the lake. Farley was always considered by most to be a man amongst men. In April 1936, Robert Pynchon, who'd been the chief clerk of the Canoe Lake Lumber Company and secretary of the local Canoe Lake School, resigned his job as postmaster, and Everett took over the job. Margaret and Lulu became his chief assistants, 
and handled all of the mail for the railway workers and their families, the local cottagers and businesses, and what remained of the lumber camp operations. In summer, this included mail for all of the local children's camps. Camp Omic and Wap on Canoe Lake, Camp Erewhon farther north on Teepee Lake, and Camp Tamaqua on South Tee Lake. It was hard to believe the number of letters that would go in and out from all the camps all summer long. Daughter Lulu would take the Smoke Lake mail to the Portage store, chugging down the lake in a wooden boat. Sometimes she would take the long way around through Bonita Narrows and Smoke Creek and deliver it directly to the float playing hangar on the north end of Smoke Lake. In winter, she would use a horse and a cutter or a dog team to go down Smoke Lake to pick up the bags of mail and bring them back to the post office to be sorted and picked up by local residents. Depending on the weather and ice conditions, Lulu would travel on the lakes or use the winter roads that were kept open by the lumber companies. She had several sled dogs, Mickey, Belto, and Togo, who loved to pull her dog sled. My last story is that of Frank Brock. Born in Nebraska in 1878, Frank didn't talk much about his early life, but newspaper articles from Guelph in the early 1950s indicated that at the age of nine, his family had moved from Nebraska to a ranch in Wyoming. As a boy, he saw the last of the cowboy roundups and the Texas cattle trail herds. He even gained experience as a stagecoach driver, carrying mail daily over a 35-mile route. At the age of 19, he left Wyoming to get an education, and in the early 1900s, graduated from the University of Michigan with a master's degree and a teaching certificate. This was quite unusual for a young man from the West in those days. He then went to the Philippines for several years, returning to teach both in Colorado and back at the University of Michigan. He migrated north to Canada about 1913 to teach at Canada's first day technical school in Hamilton. After a decade, in the Hamilton and Gold areas, Frank finally settled at Guelph Collegiate, where he taught vocational subjects until his retirement in 1949. He was a world traveler visiting China, Japan, and Mexico at a time when very few ever ventured that far from home. At an older boys' conference in 1917, he heard Taylor Statton speak and became inspired to do what was then called boys' work. This was a movement that, that began in the early 1900s and later institutionalized by the YMCA. It believed that young men, especially those in the cities, needed spiritual support and more opportunities to experience the outdoors. The camps that the YMCA started were a precursor, I think, to the North American children's camping movement. Eight years later, in 1925, Frank joined the Camp Omic staff, and from then on he spent most of his summers at Taylor Staten Camps. For the first few summers, he lived in a tent on a wooden platform on the hill just north of the old theater site on Wigwam Bay. One year was especially frosty in late August, so he built a stone fireplace and chimney at the end of his tent. Today, that fireplace still stands and is incorporated into one of the Camp Omic staff cabins. In 1932, he chose a lease site in the middle of Cook's Island, which is now known as Camp Wapameo Senior Island. After the lease was issued, the park superintendent had a change of heart when he realized that Frank's front door view was going to be the Camp Wapameo waterfront. The concern, apparently, was that his presence would, quote, negatively impact the girls' privacy, unquote. After what must have been significant back-channel negotiations with the department and with Taylor Staten Camps, 
Frank was dissuaded from building on that site, and in 1933, he chose a site on what is now known as Lighthouse Point. Everett Farley built Casamia for him in 1934 out of peeled spruce logs cut from the swamp behind the senior boys' section at Camp Amick. As Frank wrote years later, This humble cabin stands alone by forest walls surrounded, but there is found a peace of soul and happiness unbounded. Frank was a master craftsman at whatever he did. He built many of the Taylor Staten Camp's cabins. He also loved to carve wood and make furniture. His own cabin had a unique fireplace built by the McKinney brothers from 900 pounds of stone shipped to him by the mine's manager at Dome Mines as thanks for a stay at his cabin. McKinney was well known on the lake and also built the original fireplaces in the Camp Amick Dining Hall and later at several other leaseholders in the area. Frank carved and mounted onto the front face two iron thunderbirds filled with gold nuggets for eyes. The floors were covered with priceless rugs from Mexico, whose culture strongly influenced him. He handmade and carved all of the furniture, including a white pine table that was polished to a dark walnut finish. Around the edge of the table, Frank carved a store using Navajo Indian symbols. He handmade two large chairs with thunderbirds for backs. The birds were two-headed so that they could look out both sides. If you're interested in seeing some pictures of Frank's cabin, you can see them on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, under the leasehold photos section. In later years, Frank's added a boathouse, a small shower house, a cedar log ice house, and a tent platform with two single beds equipped with mosquito netting for himself or overflow guests. In the early years, he had a wooden box buried deep in the ground that when full of ice kept the fresh food cold and provided ice-cold drinking water. He had running water long before hydro came in, using a hand pump to maintain the proper pressure. A fireplace nearby heated the water. But as one friend said, it was murder when the pressure dropped during a shower. You had to pump the pressure back up by hand in order to get enough water to rinse off the soap. Frank was a man apart. He did all of Wapameo's repairs and often showed many on the lake how to fix things. He helped cottagers when their chimneys got overheated or when their water pipes burst. When new arrivals were building cabins, he'd stop by to observe the proceedings, willing, if needed, to lend a hand, provide some advice, or some missing tool. He lent his cabin often to people whom he considered the right sort for Algonquin Park. They included several women that went on to become long-time Canoe Lake residents. When visitors came, Frank would retreat to his tent platform, have his meals at Wapamia where he worked, and would occasionally look in to see how his guests were faring. All his guests were expected to help with the various chores around the place, including standing up to their waists in the water in the bay hauling out driftwood. According to his friends, he didn't want them to go soft. Among the most famous of his guests, allegedly, was Olive Diefenbaker, the wife of John Diefenbaker, who was the 13th Prime Minister of Canada, serving from 1957 to 1963. Diefenbaker was noteworthy because he appointed the first female minister in Canadian history to his cabinet, Ellen Fairclough, and also the first Aboriginal member, James Gladstone, to the Senate. During his years as Prime Minister, he also obtained passage of the Canadian Bill of Rights and granted the vote to the First Nations and Intuit peoples. 
All of this activism was certainly understandable given that his wife, then known as Olive Palmer, taught school with Frank in Guelph and came up to Algonquin every summer for ten years. Knowing what I know of Frank, she would have certainly become a first-class paddler, avid canoe tripper, and outdoorswoman, and certainly would have known how to survive in the bush. No fooling around with her, man. But Frank was a gruff sort. He didn't ever say much, and when he did, he never wasted a word or spoke off-color. The strongest word anyone ever heard was one incident when he was washing dishes in the kitchen at Wapameal. A piece of flypaper broke loose from the ceiling and landed on his head, and according to Isla McFarland, he let go an unprintable yell. Frank was a great teacher, and he taught all the time. Some of the common refrains that one guest remembered so well included, Never handle an axe that way. Want to spend the rest of your life with one leg? Always keep a chopping block between you and the wood you're cutting. Don't dig your paddle as if you were hoeing potatoes. What the heck are you leaning so far forward? It's as easy as walking. Just keep your rhythm. That would have been the at the end of a five-mile paddle. Come on now, you get the supper, and Marg will paddle while I fish. And paddle Marg did, even though her arms were dropping off. And fish he did, so that for dinner they could have lake trout. Frank was also a scoutmaster and built a log Adirondack shelter up the hill behind his place. He would bring up two or three carloads of scouts who would camp out for a week each summer continuously until 1961. The site was named Camp Kayak after an old kayak that was given to them by Lou Handler, the owner of Camp Tamaqua on South Tea Lake. One group of scouts had borrowed a few canoes and were cruising round the lake when they came across an old, tired-out kayak. As they had no boats or canoes of their own, they were thrilled when Handler told them they could have it so long as he never had to see it again. These scout groups were always very industrious. They blazed a trail to the Portage store and constructed a diving tower for the dock. Another year they started building a lighthouse and when finished in 1944, added a hand-wound Victrola turntable to the top. It had been adjusted so that one full winding would turn the table for 26 hours. A rectangular box of red and clear glass was installed on the top of the turntable, into which a small coal oil lamp was inserted. This enabled the lighthouse to emit light all night, alternating bright white and red. In later years, this was replaced by a battery-powered, intermittent flashing light. After he retired from teaching in the camps, he stayed at Canoe Lake from early spring until late fall. Frank was also a poet and used to hand-draw his Christmas cards each year using the blueprint paper that he used in his drafting. He also wrote the commemorative poem that today resides on the Tom Thompson totem pole. In his later years, he asked a longtime friend and Canoe Lake visitor, Isla McFarland, if she'd like his lease in return for keeping an eye out for him. Isla had first come to Canoe Lake as a bookkeeper at Taylor Staten Camps. Her ex-husband, Jack, had been a teacher at Lawrence Park Collegiate in Toronto and had been hired to run the waterfront program. She spent six years in the late 50s and early 60s at Camp Wapameal. Isla was another Canoe Lake independent spirit. After Frank's death in 1968 and his 90th year, Isla stayed on by herself every summer. Unfortunately, in the winter of 1976, Casamia was struck by lightning and burned to the ground. Passerbys were able to save much of the furniture. And though the lighthouse still stands under diligent care of a local resident, all that remains at the site today is the ruined shell of a small ice house in the fireplace. 
The point is used occasionally by day visitors for a picnic or a swim who have no idea as to its rich history. In my book, Algonquin Voices, there are several incredible photographs of Frank who were given to me from Isla in the late 1990s. Fast forward some 15 years, I got a note from a man who'd found one of them while searching Frank's name on Google. It turned out that his father was the photographer who had taken those photographs that I'd gotten from Isla and quite a few others while visiting Frank in the 1957. These I've posted on my website, and you can find them there as you wish. Such a small world on one hand, and such an incredible Algonquin community on the other. I hope you've enjoyed these stories of early Algonquin leaseholders, and lots of pictures can be found on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Don't forget, both my books, Algonquin Voices and Treasuring Algonquin, can be found at the Friends of Algonquin Park website or at their bookstores. Until next time...